Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. We're here to answer your questions about the remains of the day. But first of all, Heidi, Tim, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going great, David. Thanks. Good to be here. Thanks, David. Very well. So when I ask that question, do you guys ever feel this pressure to like wait for the other person to answer first or to not step? Or do you just feel like it just sort of has evolved? There's a pattern and Heidi answers first or Tim answers. How, you guys, is there any like subconscious patterns that have developed there? Or Absolutely. Yes. And I will say Tim and I <laughs> both have a habit of waiting for other people to talk. And mm. so just in general, in conversations, that's how both Tim and I are. And so learning when, so we both start talking at the same time. We like pause a little bit, wait for somebody to go. So it's always a, it's a dance. So I should probably it just <laughs> ask you each individually, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you doing, Heidi? And then let I feel Heidi like we've gotten into a flow. We always right. say the same thing, no matter how we're doing. So. We're, we're great. Uh, yeah. Why do great. I even ask? Right. Great. Thanks, David. <laughs> Tim, I'm actually quietly suffering inside, but okay. I just don't want to. Sure. But I just feel like I've created a pattern. Right. That's a whole can of worms you don't want to open on, on a podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, if in the middle of this show, you feel like you need to tell us how you're actually doing, then we can always pause and we can uh, give you a few minutes and then you can pay Heidi at the end. Um, maybe that will be maybe that will be one of the questions that the close readers ask us. Tim, how, how are you really Tim doing? doing? <laughs> how are you yeah. really? Pain, anguish. So. Yeah. <laughs> What's the famous line? Uh Pain, pain, nothing but pain. Nothing um, but pain. Well, we are here, we are, as I said, here to answer your questions about remains of the day. Well, our listener questions, not specifically your questions, Tim and Heidi, although we could, I suppose. Um, before we do, I want to say a quick word from our friends over at New College Franklin. You know about them by now. They are good friends of ours. Through the college year, students go through an intense period of growth intellectually, spiritually, socially, and emotionally. So as you are thinking about college options, consider not only what you want to do, but who you want to be. New College Franklin is dedicated to spiritually forming students by discipling them through the seven liberal arts for wisdom, virtue, and service. As a four-year classical Christian liberal, liberal arts college nestled in downtown Franklin, Tennessee, New College Franklin focuses on the great ideas, the trivium, and the quadrivium to contemplate the beautiful, good, and true, and to respond with wonder and gratitude. You can find out more at newcollegefranklin.org. That again, that is newcollegefranklin.org. So if you are a college student or you know, almost a college student and you're trying to decide where to go, check out New College. And of course, if you are a teacher or a parent, add them to your list of prospective colleges and check out their uh, prospective student weekends. I believe they have one coming up uh, either in the end of February or early March. So I'm just going to throw that out there. You can find out more about that at newcollegefranklin.org. Check them out, people. It's a great place. <clears throat> yeah. We're, we, uh, we all, I think, love the people that are there and would yeah. highly recommend them. I mean, we wouldn't you know, constantly read their copy on this show if we didn't really believe in what they were doing. Uh, before we get into the episode, I also want to mention that there's lots of great content going on at uh, the Close Reads Podcast Network. The three of us, uh, that being Heidi, Tim, and I, recorded a Libromania episode this week where we, uh, where we talked about the most romantic books out there. Our favorite romantic books, I guess. We uh, did the impossible and tried to rank our five favorites, um, much to the chagrin of some of our listeners. So if you want to check that out, check out the Libromania feed. We, of course, have the daily poem with new poems every day. Uh, the Place of Thing is going through Julius Caesar right now. And uh, Heidi's been involved with that with Matt Bianco and Brian Phillips. So lots of great content out there. Be sure to be on the lookout for that and subscribe to all those feeds and help us spread the word by, by reviewing and leaving comments and 
so forth. We'd really appreciate that. But we are here to talk remains of the day. So let's do that. We've got lots of questions. So we'll dive in and we will answer as many as we can. Some of them will do rapid fire style and some of them we will spend a lot of time on. This first one, I think we'll have to spend a little bit of time on. Um, and this comes from Jenica. This was on the Facebook thread that we posted. And this is, this is the question. Why was this section with Stevens riding in the car with the doctor left feeling unfinished, unexplained? Why did Ishiguro choose not to explain what the doctor was really saying about what he believed, why he was in the village, his opinion on universal suffrage, suffrage etc.? Neither the doctor nor Stevens really explained their thoughts or opinions, and they didn't really ask the other to clarify. At least this is how she was saying that was, that was how it came across to her. Um, Tim and Heidi, did you feel the same way that they were both kind of leaving something out and not ta- saying exactly what they thought? Yeah, and so you don't have to choose. I'll ask Tim to talk first. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read it and I, and let me first say that I'm not going to fight and say like, this is the reading. I just kind of made an interpretive decision. And my interpretive decision was that the doctor, uh, deeply disapproved of what, um, what he knew about Lord Darlington. And he was trying to not, he was trying to not give judgment to Mr. Stevens, I don't know, maybe in an effort to be polite. Um, now, why he didn't speak up about universal suffrage, I wonder if that was just kind of professionally, he is the doctor, these are his patients, to get into an argument with them about their political convictions and his doesn't really serve anybody. So he was just, he just abstained for that reason. But I felt like the interaction between Stevens and the doctor about Lord Darlington was because the doctor just, he didn't want to say, so you, you served a Nazi. That was kind of my reading. What did you think, Heidi? I I think that you're really on to something with the psychology of the characters uh, and the and the kind of social mores of English life. It's not the you know in the upper classes you don't just argue about your political opinions, right? There's a lot of there there is that sense that recurring word in the novel of dignity, right? In in just not creating a scene. Um, I also think that we have to keep in mind that this is a memory novel. And so the, the anecdotes that are chosen are not necessarily always going to be satisfying tied up plot points. They're going to bring up threads of memory that are weaving together that give us insight into the character who's telling the story. And it's particularly revealing of Stevens that what he remembers about the conversation is not the neatly tied up points that they were making, but the way he felt with the doctor, the way he felt about himself, how he didn't defend Arlington, all of those things that, uh, that we've talked about on the show, those were the salient points in that conversation in the memory of Stevens, which is the genre, you know, kind of the form of the novel. Mm. Those, a lot of those memories to me, they strike me as, um, have you ever stood over a wishing well or a coin fountain and you've seen a quarter, you know, in the fountain, but there's enough 
and it's clear because the water is clear, but there's enough turmoil on the water that when you reach in, if you reach in for the quarter, you can't quite place your hand exactly on it because your vision is just a little bit broken. Right. And distorted by the water. That's good. That's yeah. a good analogy. Tim with the metaphors again. I like it. Oh yeah, there it is. No, there it is. It's on uh, cue. Yep. Well, and you know, we should probably just wrap this episode. I know, right? This question reminded me of I'm teaching the Iliad right now in my uh, seventh grade, sixth and seventh grade literature class. And um, we're the question that every set of middle school students, secondary school students, always has whenever I teach this is why doesn't the Iliad end with the end of the war? Right? Like, why does it just feel like it's breaking off in the middle of the action and starting in the middle of the action? And it's a really mm. good question. But it it's the is. same kind of principle here, and that this is not a story about the Trojan War. This is a story about the rage of Achilles. And then, thus, if we tied it up with a neat little bow, you could miss that in book 24 with the conversation between Achilles and Priam and how redemptive that is, right? So that is the true ending of the true message of the story. And that's in some ways a little bit parallel to this, that the point isn't what happened, but the point is what does Stevens remember and how does that contribute to his redemption or lack thereof at the end of the novel? And as we're looking at all of these memories, that's our question. Why does he remember this instead of this? Yeah. Very well said. Somebody added to the the sort of sub-thread there. Let's see. It is Lauren, I believe. And it's, and she said, it seems like there are so many half-told stories in the book. Doesn't mm-hmm. it? Stevens never asks questions and he never has direct answers to questions. I wonder if that's part of the point of who he is. And she put a question mark at the end of her statement there. Um, I, as in, I wonder if that's part of the point of who he is. Mm-hmm. Question mark. Do you, what do you, what do you guys make of that? So the idea that there's many half-told stories, there's a lot of stories where the, there doesn't seem to end up being a resolution to the anecdote or to, to whatever thought Stevens is, is, uh, is processing. Um, what's the effect of that? Um, do you think that, is that a, is that a flaw in some way? Is that a flaw in his character some way? I don't, I don't mean to critique Ishiguro so much, so much as I'm saying in terms of Stevens himself. Heidi, what do you think about this? Uh, I, I think that she, I think what she said is beautiful. I, I, I love that. The idea of unanswered questions and unsaid, things that are unsaid, the subtext of this novel is just as important as the things that are not said. And I think that that's true in every single memory novel. Uh, and this is particularly beautiful that way. And Ishiguro has crafted it so that Everything has a meaning. So if something is left unsaid, the question we ask ourselves is why? Why is that not part of what he remembers? And in and, and kind of tracing and that negative space, that negative capability, uh, we can get to the heart of this character. Uh, so looking for plot points in a memory novel has some value, but it is far less important than asking the question of what does this tell us? I have a follow-up for you on that then. So well, there's been discussion, you know, even, even on the show, we, we discussed at least briefly the idea of whether he's reliable. Right. So um, do you, how do you read his reliability in terms of this being a memory novel? Does that, is that a, is the question of an unreliable narrator something that interests you or is of, 
is of value to you given the context of a memory novel. Hmm. Tim, I'll like, let you field that one first. <laughs> I, we got to give her a chance to think for a second here. Why don't I just pull up? Let me yep. see. Let me just open to page 160 and read for a while. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> yeah. I recall turning the forward round at about this stage and doubling back. Actually, this is that's actually the, the part of the doctor. Um, that was amazing. Have, well you, have I have we rambled enough? You've been you shouldn't have been laughing. You should have been thinking. Uh, Tim, do you have any thoughts on that? I do think that it's that the trying to understand the trustworthiness of a narrator in any account is is very important. I just want to reflect back on what Heidi said. I think she's exactly right. This is a memory novel and. It's as much about what Stevens doesn't say, what he omits, is it is about the plot points. I think that's absolutely true. Um, for me, there are more than a few times that I would read something that Stevens said, and I would say, wait, why are we just getting that information now? And we discussed it, I think, on episode three or four. He didn't lie earlier. He just neglected to tell us. The big one being that Lord Darlington was edging toward Nazism. I mean, that just kind of just shows up like a whale coming up from under the water. It just shows up in the middle <laughs> yeah. of the narrative. Hey, there's a metaphor like, Wait, what is that? <laughs> Another metaphor. Although that was um, a simile. Yes, it, it was a simile. As. Uh so that was a half-baked answer. And now, and with that half-baked answer, I'll turn it over to Heidi. <laughs> so the reason I didn't answer right away was because I don't want to monopolize because this is such an, a huge deal to me. I, I love unreliable narrators. I consider them the great, great literature and a challenge. You know, I'm one of those like challenge accepted. Let's figure you out, character. <laughs> so that's... I, I am a huge fan of unreliable narrators. I do think that Stevens is, but there's different kinds of unreliable narrators. There are unreliable narrators that don't tell the truth. Mm -hmm. There's unreliable narrators that are that are not self-aware. Mm -hmm. And yeah, because this is a really important distinction that you're thinking. there. Yes. And I think with Stevens, we definitely have the second the unreliable narrator who is simply unaware, who is blinded. There's a couple of questions here about will willful blindness. That yeah. Are, go ahead. No, no, no. Sorry. Sorry. No, you're fine. That, so that is, I love memory novels because this might, these are my favorite kinds of novels because of that question of do we are what we remember, right? Memory makes us who we are. And so as, as characters in these stories, kind of a lot of memory novels are written from late in life, like from the evening of a life, the remains of the day. And you look back and you evaluate who you are and, um, and your choices and the things that have happened in your life and, and, and try to weave them together into something that you can make sense of mm. and make it into a narrative mm. uh, along the way. And that is a really important thing to do. And, and that, so 
but all of us are unreliable narrators of our own life. We're all likely to make ourselves heroes in our own story when more often than not we're the villains or a side <laughs> character that should have acted when we didn't. You know, these are this is what's important about memory novels is because then we can turn our eyes to ourselves and think about our own lives and how we are unreliable narrators. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a I think there's a distinction. I like your distinction there. And I think what you're pointing to is the difference between a narrator who is deceptive and a narrator Mm -hmm. who is on a journey of discovery. Because when you're on a journey of discovery, you inherently, I mean, implicitly, you is is the suggestion that you don't know what you're talking about or or you don't know enough to have the full picture. And so this is an example of where I don't know that he's being deceptive, although he might be a little bit self-deceiving, but he's on a journey to discovery. And that means he doesn't know something. And when he, when he doesn't know something, he can't give us, you can't give someone what you don't know. Um, so I, I think that I, I really like that distinction. I think it's, I think it's useful. I, um, you know, there's a sort of technical aspect to the idea of an unreliable narrator, but even that wasn't something that was, I think that was coined in like the sixties. Right. I think Wayne Booth coined that in the art of fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it, you know, it's not like it, I mean, people were writing, um, characters who were complex and didn't always know what they were talking about well before it was ever something that we gave a name to, you know? So there's right. a difference between, or there's at least um, a balance between a narrator who is deceptive and a narrator who is discovering themselves. So, right. uh, Tim, were you exactly. going to say something? I, it's, I couldn't tell if it was a good I was ask Heidi if she had a, a favorite memory novel. My favorite memory novel is Brideshead, for sure. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I also love Till We Have Faces, the book that I'm going to go ahead and name. So, um, and I, I really okay, like... I'm just on my phone. I'm not paying attention. Yes. I really <laughs> love Wuthering Heights, which is maybe the original Unreliable Narrator book. And that um, a lot of people don't like Unreliable Narrators <laughs> at first because you, you kind of have to get a... a a vocabulary in yourself for them. Like readers who are new to unreliable narrators, they take the narrators at face value and then they're like, I hate this book. Right. And so getting behind that unreliable narrator to say, I actually, as the reader, have more information than this narrator. I'm it that that empowers the reader to read those books. So there's a um I actually was on my phone because I was looking for something, but yeah. So was, I was read that it was Wayne Booth who classified or who came up with that that term. Um, but since then, this is this might be interesting for this conversation. There um, was a critic named William Riggin who, in the eighties, did a study of unreliable narrators, and he kind of um, created categories of them. Huh. Which is so. I mean, we don't need to spend forever on this, but some people might find this interesting. So, for example, there is something called a picaro, which is a narrator who is characterized by exaggeration and bragging. So, okay. think like um, Maul Flanders, right? And then there's the madman, who is a narrator who is either only experiencing mental defense mechanisms, such as you know, post something post traumatic or something, or a severe mental illness, such as paranoia. So, think you know, and one floor. Yeah. yeah, or Kafka or something. Uh-huh. Like that. And then there's yeah. the clown is a narrator who does not take narration seriously and consciously plays with conventions. So think Tristram Shandy. 
Huh. And then there's also the knife or the knife. The knife. It's got the little umlaut thing. And this is where you're thinking of a narrator whose perception is immature, or limited through their point of view. So Holden Caulfield, Forrest Gump, yep. Mm. Yep. And then the other, the fifth one is the liar, which is a mature narrator of sound cognition who deliberately misrepresents themselves. So the example he gives here is uh, from The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford. I don't. I haven't read, read that. that. But so those yeah. are the categorization is you know it, um, for you know if you want to do an advanced reading on that you could just wikipedia this is all listed there that's where i went to look for it uh, but that for people who want to think about it further you could try to figure out which which is an example of which of those unreliable narrators is stevens an example of mm-hmm. um, and it seems like in some ways you know he's not immature per se but you, maybe he falls under that the same one as huckleberry finn or um he's not he's not the picaro he's not exaggerating or bragging I don't, it doesn't seem like right he might be a mild version of the madman, <laughs> hmm. some kind of defense mechanism. It doesn't seem uh. to be purposefully playing with convention. Um, so anyway, it's not, you know, I don't know that it's, uh, I don't know that we, they all fit in cleanly, but if you want to think about that discussion further, it's interesting to uh, figure out where he might fall into that. I, I think one thing that is interesting about this is the fact that Stephen doesn't really show up on that spectrum. I think one of the biggest reasons why is because the nature of his unreliability is his Englishness huh. has so much to do with why he's unreliable. Right. It's mm-hmm. not just that he's a human being also. And there are other human beings who are not English that you know could fall into his same category. But I wonder if that's part of the reason why this novel could read so powerfully as an indictment of this kind of like, old old way of being right well and i think another way of saying that you're exactly right is that the the englishness the social limitations uh that stevens has the inability to connect to say everything he feels and means to ask questions that intrude upon their perception of other people's privacy right that that is a limitation of the of high english culture and that that's also his limitation. So there's two levels there that's yeah. happening. That's really good, Tim. Do you have a favorite? Either of you? Both of you? Gosh, I don't. I, I can't think of one. I mean, I can think of novels that I've read that are memory novels, but I can't think of one that's my favorite. David? Probably, probably Brideshead. Yeah. But also uh, Crossing to Safety would fall into that category, right? Yes, it does. And that is a really lovely memory novel, too. Um, okay, let's go to another question here. This is from Ilea, who gave me a pronunciation guide to her name, because apparently I have asked Love on the that. air before. So she asks, do you think Stephen's blindness to the people and events around him is cluelessness, willful ignorance, or as Cardinal claims, just a lack of curiosity? How does the meaning interpretation and interpretation of this book change depending on how you answer that question? So Ilea. Oh, man. That's thank you for the question. Do you think Stephen's blindness to the people and events around him is cluelessness, willful ignorance, or just lack of curiosity? Let's start with that part of the question first. Yeah. Heidi? Um, I think that it goes between all of those at different points. I think sometimes it's willful ignorance, but I think more often than not, it is exactly what Tim and I were just talking about. The limitations of his role, uh, of 
the the culture that's being indicted within this novel and uh, the massive changes that are taking place, the cataclysmic changes that are taking place and the uh, conservative contingency that he represents are resisting that by kind of closing their eyes. Um, and I think that takes place on the public level and the private level. Um, so I think there's multiple reasons for it within the novel, but it isn't all willful ignorance. I think a lot of it is just, he doesn't see, he's myopic. He doesn't see past the world that's presented to him that he is serving. Hmm. Tim? I would say the same thing as Heidi. I would say it's a combination of all three. I love the word myopic. I, I think if if we had to choose among those three, if I had to choose among those three, I would choose willful ignorance, but it's a willful ignorance of myopia, not a willful ignorance like my godson who when confronted by you know, his mom or his dad for doing something wrong, instantly chooses to not remember and to redirect the conversation to something in which he's innocent. That's like, to me, the most like a glaring example of willful ignorance. And I'm not picking on my godson, like every person ever has done this. Yeah. Um, How old is he? Like 25, 26? Yeah. He's, yeah, he's 27. He's now <laughs> he's that age. He's that. I remember my friend, my friend, Jonathan said, no, no 11 year old boy has ever lost an argument in his life. And I was like, yeah, that's true. No 11 year old boy in the history of the world has ever lost an argument. It's just like developmentally, that's just the moment, you know, <laughs> or not, you, you don't permit yourself to say, Oh, Oh, yeah. I stir up my lace. Thank you. for that. Right. Anyway, Stevens <laughs> is not, that is not the kind of willful ignorance that he is practicing. If we do want to say that he is practicing willful ignore, I think it's a willful ignorance of sort of like, I would call it like subconscious yeah, myopia. Yeah, that's good. Or conscious mm -hmm. myopia, something like that. Right. I, th I think that uh, in some ways it seems like maybe he is exhibiting some willful ignorance sort of because he believes that that's the right thing to do though, right? Yes. Like he seems to be looking yes. away because that's yeah. what dignity or duty or what have you mm -hmm. demands of him. So he, you know, at a, and whether he actually believes that or whether that's the excuse he makes, I think is one of the big questions of the book. And one of the reasons that you can read this book over and over again, and I don't think come to the same conclusions each reading. So I think that, you know, there is some willful ignorance in there. I think there is maybe, would you guys, would you guys say that there's any social cluelessness in there? Yes. I would. Well, the, the, the scene that keeps coming up in this conversation with this question is when he's called in and grilled by the lords who are making him the butt of their joke, right? Like they're, well, not really their yeah. joke, but their point. They're trying to make a point that the lower classes don't understand enough to be able to have any say in ruling the empire. And therefore fascism is the right answer, right? So that, and there's, and he and he even says, there's even a line in that scene when he says, I knew the right answer to that. So I just kept thinking to myself and he kept saying, I'm not equipped to answer that, sir. But that is the objective correlative for what this conversation is. Does he have an opinion? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe he's not allowed to according to the social customs. Maybe he, he knows that he would uh, 
undermine the point they're trying to make. So he's keeping himself, he's giving himself no voice in that conversation, even when he does have an opinion. That is, but in that moment, he has to act like he knows nothing, has nothing to add there. It's so dehumanizing. And I think the yeah. point that Shiguro is making is that that actually is Stephen's whole life. And so how could he make a move with Miss Kenton? How could he take a risk? Everything has ever, always taught him not to have a voice, not to take risk. Hmm. Hmm. Which is part of the reason why, Heidi, in our last episode, you really wanted him to actually use his voice in speaking to Miss Kenton. You wanted, him, you wanted him to say, this is how I felt, or this is how I do feel about you, because he's for so long not had a voice. It is. That is exactly it. But I think that I'm wrong about that. I think that's just my own desire for him. And even even in the, reading some of the questions on this Q&A, that... Um, that, um, that um, um, Read, or the, the comment we just read in which the commenter said, maybe, you know, he never asks any questions, right? I thought, oh, maybe that's part of his redemption too, is that he asks her if she's happy. Maybe mm. that's the best, maybe that's the most honorable question he can ask. It shouldn't be, I was in love with you and I should have made a move all those years ago. That really is a dishonorable thing to say to a married woman, but I do want him to have a voice and I feel like that would be so redemptive to him. Because yeah. of this exact thing, because of being forced into a mold and dehumanized his whole life. Hmm. Okay, here's one from Beth. We've got lots of questions, so I want to move. You know, move yeah. Um, she says, could you circle back to the duty desire question? We kind of are doing that right now, but especially as it relates to that important moment when he chooses to protect Miss Kenton rather than finally give way to his desire to say what he feels, the scene that you just referenced. Heidi, obviously it takes wisdom to know which to choose in a particular moment. Given that this is such a crucial one, do we conclude that duty wins after all? Um, she says, as Christians, we do have to say obedience is first, but so many times Stevens has made it either or. Uh, sadly, I think he would have been a better butler if he and Kenton had married. Kenton had married. Um, and then she does ask, how did this book change each of us, especially when considering duty and desire on our own lives? But let's let's go back to the first part there. Um, she just asks, can we circle back to duty and desire? Um, especially with that scene, um, given that this is such a crucial scene, do we conclude that duty wins out over desire after all? Tim, is that what we're supposed to conclude? That duty wins out over desire in the end Oh man. Uh, <laughs> that is a really hard question. It, if there's if there's an evaluation that goes along with that, that duty wins out over desire and that's good. I don't think that's true. If it's just uh Stevens does not pursue his duty and at the end is left with only a kind of glimmering notion um, for the remainder of his life that he is permitted to choose the things that he desires. If that's what we mean, then I would say, yes, duty wins in the end. Did that, did that make sense? What I just said, mm -hmm. it was kind of long. It was this like really <laughs> tortured. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what, are you, what are your thoughts, Heidi? 
Um, I think that Beth is like really nailed it when she says, sadly, so many times Stevens made it either or. I think there was a long, long period of his life in which he could have united duty and desire when, which again, as I've said before, is that, that, that a marriage is such a picture of that. And it's that when you are, what he could have done was marry Miss Kenton and then his desire would have been for her and her, his duty would have been to her. And, but because of the choices he made, then at the end, he was forced to choose between them and he chose duty. And I think insofar as duty and desire, because of our sin, not because of the way things should be, uh, you know, the, the consummation of the Christian journey, the pilgrimage to the kingdom is that duty and desire will forever and eternally be united for Christians. So, but insofar as our sin on earth makes this dichotomy between the two, we should choose duty and Stephen should choose duty and subordinate desire. But that is because he missed his opportunities to unite them throughout the course of his life. Hmm. Do you, how do you? And so when he's with her at the end, he made the right choice. Yeah. Yeah, I think he made the right choice, but we all feel the loss. Like I keenly feel the loss that he never got to say boldly that he loved this woman and that she never got to hear it because she loved this man. And it is so clear they still mm-hmm. love each other, right? And mm-hmm. so that missed opportunity is not something they can ever unite because she has married another man. Mm-hmm. And so duty is the right decision there. But that doesn't mean there's not still a very deep loss. Yeah. Have you, um, in keeping with her question, have you found that the thoughts on duty and desire impacted your lives at all? Yeah, I think it's something I've been thinking about for years and years. So it just kind of adds to the thoughts. And I've been thinking a lot about you know, the, the question of marriage and that, that brought that up. I mean, that, that question of, is it wrong to love a married woman? Is it wrong for him to love her? And I would say, no, it's not wrong for him to love her, although that's debatable, but it is wrong for him to make a move on her. So just thinking about that in our broken lives, because many of us feel that, you know, I know people who are married but in love with someone else or in love with a married person. And, and that question is haunting. So I've, I've been really thinking about that as a result of this book. Tim, what about you? I, I feel like my, this is like an organizing motif of my life. I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't use, when I've thought about it in the past, I didn't think about it in terms of duty and desire. Um, we've used that because Heidi brought it up and it's a really potent kind of, um, dichotomizing, yes, dichotomizing of the kind of like two poles of this novel. But I I feel like, I think especially, (laughs) I'm going to be very candid. I'm not sure that I should leave this on the air. My mom was, um, telling me that she had read, 
a card that she had given me when I, when I was a younger person. And it was all full of kind of like these like robust hopes that she and my dad had for me and like this earnest desire that I be, you know, this kind of valiant character going into the world. And then she said, she like remembered, I gave this to him when he was five. Like, he didn't even really understand. He could probably barely read it. And there are these really heavy notions of, you know, like kind of the, the way that Tim should be in the world. And like, I'm really, really grateful for that. But I think it's been a struggle for me to say, but man, there are some ways that I am that don't conform to that. And I think they're good things and they don't conform to that. And it's been, I've had to work hard to assert those for myself. Hmm. And I, and I read Mr. Stevens and I think part of the reason I want to protect him is for the same reasons. I want him to assert the things that are him and that are good into his world. And I can identify with the struggle that it's not an easy thing given that culture that he's in in the culture that I grew up in is very different, but I think it's maybe analogous in some ways. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So should we move on now or should we not move on now? I don't really, yeah. <laughs> I, that question is to me. I that think you should is, answer that question. Yeah, me? why not, oh, David? Um, oh, I wasn't. I wasn't actually trying to avoid answering the question. Um, I, I was. Know. I was just in my head. I was like, so what's the transition from Tim right? talking about this in his life? Um, I don't. I, I honestly don't know the question, the answer to the question. Right. I don't, I don't know if I've spent enough time thinking about the book and well, that particular theme in the book for a long enough time. Um, I mean, I think we all to some degree have that, you know, what, what Tim's talking about there. We all have that sort mm-hmm. of question of to what degree do we follow our bliss and to what degree do we, um, do what we believe we're supposed to do. Right. Um, and that's one of the balancing acts that is discernment, right? Yes. Um, so, I mean, I think, I don't know that I would have, would have ever, as, as you said to him, I don't know that I ever would have named it that way. Um, but I think, you know, the, I think even as a parent, that's something that is on my mind, you know, um, how do you cultivate the ability to discern between those two things in children? And then also how do you, as a parent, how do you in the moment, like, do you follow the thing that, you know, I feel like discipline sometimes with children, I, I feel that's tension. Like, am I disciplining the kid for something they did because, or, the, or is the way that I'm disciplining them due to some parental duty that I think I have, you know, like a, I need to correct this thing. And so my duty is to, to correct them. Or is it because it is annoying me? <laughs> and so I, the, the, you know, and I think we, that's true of our own selves as well. Like, are we looking at things that, you know, that we do, um, and and are we feeling bad or feeling good about ourselves because it is fulfilling some kind of duty that we're supposed to feel good or bad about ourselves? Or you know, I don't know. It's a very complicated thing, and I don't have a real answer for how it's changed me. But it's you know, I don't right. think that really ever leaves our consciousness. I think it's a pretty universal state of questioning. Right. Well, and I think a lot yeah. of it depends on our natural bents too. Like I do tend to be a very desire driven person. And so, but I'm also want to live a good life. And mm-hmm. the only way to do that is to, is to do your duty. And so 
that has been at least in many ways the lesson, right? Well, to read about wisdom in the Proverbs, that this like with if you hate wisdom, you hate death, and so much of wisdom is duty, and that if you hate wisdom, you love death. If you hate wisdom, you love death. So that, yeah, you that I think has been such a lesson for me in my thirties of how important it is to just get up, make my kids breakfast, do the laundry answer my emails and not be and not live like the most adventurous, exciting life in the world that, and, and I, I need that. I need a vision for that. Hmm. And there are other people who are more duty driven, like need to put their head up and, and, you know, eat a good meal and love their life. Like that to, to be on a Christian journey, to unite those things. I think books and stories are hugely important to harmonizing those two elements of the good life. Hmm. What you're saying here actually brings us to the next question. So I want to transition to mm-hmm. that because... Yeah. Um, David, can I say one more thing yeah, about that? Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. About this question? Yep. Um, I, I think for people who were raised in a Christian household where Christianity was taken seriously or parents who are trying to raise their kids within the faith, I think that... Um, struggling about this question is an inevitability. Mm-hmm. It's not like, hey, parents, if you do it well, your kids will never have a hard time with this. <laughs> I just don't even think that's realistic. I just think, like, no, accept, right. accept the struggle. This is going to be, they're going to, like, line up on the duty side, they're going to line up on the desire side, and either predilection is going to lend them toward kind of a struggle toward the other or away from the other. Mm. Right. Mm. So, okay. So Heidi's talking about the idea of the good life and, and sometimes you have to just eat a meal. So that, that brings us <laughs> to this question by, um, I think it's Fern. I think Joe and Fern have an account together. Um, I know she says, I noticed how many meals were mentioned from the little cocoa parties to great international dinners, people conversing over food and drink, others serving food and drink problems arriving for arising for individuals because of food and drink, i.e. Mr. Stevens. Uh, seniors accident. I can't decide if these events are connected to higher ideas within communion. Uh, she puts that in quotation marks or simply mentioned because meals are central to a book about butling. What thoughts do you have about the meals in this book? Oh, she does sign it at the end. Thanks Fern. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Tammy comments and says, it's kind of like Babette's feast. Um, do you, uh, do either of you have any thoughts on, on this, this question, any answers for her? Can I ask a clarifying question? The, sure. the word communion in quotes, do we take that to mean Christian communion or a communion between human beings? I'm taking that to be, to mean communion between human beings, but yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, how I would have taken it, but I just didn't want to be presumptuous. Yeah. So, so, you know, how do you're talking about the idea of the good, you know, the good life, taking pleasure in things, you know, there is a place for that. Do do you think that that's one of the key parts or is it just simply sort of, it's the conceit it's that this is a, it's a book about butling. So of course they're going to do butler things and there's going to be food involved or is there something uh, richer uh, going on in, in terms of the use of that motif? So I, I was curious about this question. I thought a lot about it over the last week because I didn't s- sense a Babette's Feast kind of um, 
kind of motif in this story. I, it, it wasn't these long, sumptuous descriptions that make you hungry about the beauty and the taste and the texture and the presentation of the food. I, I saw it. I thought that the food was more utilitarian, like the thing that the servants serve. Um, so I saw it more of as evidence of um, the his his service. Um, but I I also may have just missed that. Did you guys read that differently? I did not. Okay. Did you, David? Did I read it differently? Did you see Did what you she's seeing the, more of the feasting mm-hmm. kind of motif? I don't know that I saw it in terms of the Babette's feast connection. I didn't make that connection until Tammy commented, but um, I did. No, I did notice that there was, you know, mm-hmm. a common, but I also noticed that there was um, a lot of uh, that, that if we're looking at that as, you know, I don't, I don't see it as some kind of unifying motif, actually, because I think that often when there's food involved, there'd be cr- dissonance was entered into the situation. So, you know, they're eating and at the, with the lower, the lower middle class people and they end up arguing or he's bringing in, you know, like she said, Stephen's father falls or, you know, food is the relationship between the rich people and food and then the service people is a fraught one. So mm-hmm. I, I actually thought that maybe there was something disconnecting about it. But, you know, you're, you're talking about the idea of the good life. And I think that perhaps one of the big problems for Stevens is that this thing that is supposed to create, get offer pleasure, create, mm-hmm. and, and creates dissonance. Like there's a there's sort of a dramatic irony about the role that, uh, that, that food and, and the pleasures that it brings are supposed to bring because it kind of, it introduces to, between him and the other characters uh, levels of, or between any of the characters, it introduces levels of um, of conflict, and mm-hmm. you know it creates the hierarchy. Except in the scenes between he and Miss Kenton when they're when they're um, drinking the hot chocolate, and it seems like that's the biggest difference. You know that that they're able to. Um, there's that there is seems to be some common ground when they're drinking the hot chocolate and then ultimately in the end aren't they having coffee or something when they mm-hmm. have their final conversation so that's the way i took it i, I think i thought they was kind of playing with you know the dramatic uh the, he's creating some dramatic irony through through the various uses of food in the story i totally agree with that i think that that's right on there was food was not and and i did notice that in reading that um food can be such a communal image and an image of beauty and abundance and the good life in, in novels. But it was, I, I, I noticed that it wasn't in this novel. There's more description of the silver um, and then the food. And other than, like you said, kind of small comments about, we had Miss Kenton and I ate some pretty good cakes and the tea was strong enough and you know, that, that kind of thing, which is very British. Um, so yeah, they could, could have made food such a redeeming image and didn't. And so that I think is, is the significance of it, kind of the lack of significance of it, as you pointed out, the dramatic irony of that. Tim, did you want to add anything? No, sir. Okay. Um, we have so many good questions. So um, I'm trying to 
figure how many we can address here in the next few minutes. Amy mentions that there are uh, many times there are these um, references to hands and touching. And it's interesting to her, she says, that during the reference that uh, the conference and while Stephen's father is dying, how many references there, there are in particular during those scenes. People close to him, such as his father and Miss Kenton, consider their hands while all those he is, he's serving at the conference are constantly touching him. So she's wondering um, if we have any thoughts about this. I had not noticed that. That's an, it's an interesting observation. Uh, do you think there's anything, uh, Tim, do you think there's anything metaphorical about that? Anything we're supposed to take, did, take from that? I saw this question on Facebook and I had the same response as you, David. I had not noticed it before. I, ha- I have no poignant thoughts on it. Heidi? Um, I, I didn't notice it until the question came up. That was some really good close reading on a lot of these questions. Yeah. Um, but I went and flipped through it with that in mind through those scenes. And she's right. There are numerous references to that. And I, I think it adds to the pathos of the story because there's such an inability to connect emotionally that to focus on the hands, which of course are symbolic of service, which is what he is. If you're looking at someone's hands, you're not looking at their face, you're thinking about what they're doing for, for you, not who they are. Um, and yet there's probably such a deep longing to be connected and touching is symbolic of that, right? That, that idea of these hands that are serving you when really all I want is just to be connected touched in a in a way that is connecting to others uh, which really is the longing of his heart and he doesn't know how to get there so he uses his hands to serve which ends up dehumanizing him instead of being able to connect Hmm. i will say about that question that i appreciated it so much and i had noticed it so little that i wrote on the inside flap of my book with the date read for the hands next time mm. um, because I think that was really observant and I, I want to observe it next time I read the book. Good job, Amy. <clears throat> okay. Uh, let's see here. There was one I wanted to, sorry. Uh, um, okay. Can you see, speak to the significance? This is from Esther of the natural settings along the journey the hedges that seem to block him in, the conversation in the rundown bus stop, and specifically that he ends up facing the Western Sea. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Read, the, read can, the question again, David. Can you speak to the significance, if any, of the natural settings along the journey, like the hedges that seem to block him in, the rundown bus stop, and, the, and specifically that he ends facing the Western Sea? Well, I think because Mr. Stevens is on an odyssey, the geography of that odyssey is going to be, is, is going to add to the significance of it. Um, I really liked in the beginning of the novel when he takes that stop to take like that little hike and he sees off into the distance and kind of notices the geography of his own home for the first time. I thought that that was a kind of a lovely um, image and foreshadowing of what his journey might bring him more of a, you know, wider vision of the world. Um, the hedges certainly make a lot of sense as he's driving. He's, he, he it's that myopia again. Um, and uh, 
getting to the sea, getting from one end of the country to the other, um, out to a spacious place where he can see beyond. You know, the story is not an allegory. And so each place, I don't think, has this, you know, Pilgrim's Progress-like significance. Um, and it doesn't correspond with Dante or Odysseus or any of that kind of thing. Um, it is just a journey across England. But because it's a journey, the geography, uh, the descriptions of the geography are going to be... Um, a mirror into uh, kind of his inner journey as well. And I think that's certainly true. So I think that's really good close reading on Esther's part. Tim, your turn. I did not, there were not many things about the geographical descriptions that jumped out to me. An exception being, I feel like our author used the bus stop in a way, I think that was really clever when the bus comes the time is up as opposed to when they if they if they were not waiting for a bus and they just voluntarily chose to leave then their relationship could kind of they could kind of drag the end of their relationship out but to have but to be waiting for a bus to arrive and that bus when it arrives it's the end of their relationship. They're not going to see each other again in all likelihood. I felt like that aspect just of the storytelling was very nicely done. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're going to move on here just because I want to get through some of these questions. Some people posted questions that I'm not going to ask as a question. I'm just going to share them as a comment because I think that they're, they're interesting and that people might like them. But a couple more questions before I do that. Uh, Let's see. Um, Okay. Jenna asks... In the last several paragraphs, Stephen says, quote, to the likes of you and I, end quote, two times. Did we ever establish who this book is addressed to? She said perhaps it was answered in an earlier podcast. I'm not remembering. I don't think we ever talked about that. Who do you take it as this book is being written to? I love this question. I love this question. I actually thought about this a few times during the reading of the book. And one of the things that jumped out to me is how much Stephen's presumes that the reader is the same as him. I mean, because he's, he will draw the reader into his confidence and he'll say, um, you and I, you and I. And it's kind of funny because he does it on a couple of occasions in which we are probably very much not in league with Mr. Stevens at that moment. Hmm. Hmm. So I, I, if, I don't know that he's writing to a, he imagines a fellow English butler that he's writing to, but I think he at least takes for granted a common alliance of sentiments and convictions. Hmm. Hmm. Um, yeah, I have no idea who it's written to. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I, I love this question, and I hope that you guys have the answer. David, do you know the answer to this? No, 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 no. I don't know that he's ever yeah. said who it's written to. Um, it's written to you. <laughs> right. And that's also- right. <laughs> yes, that's it. Um, okay, let's see. Um, there's so many good questions here. I'm trying to figure out which ones I want to... We need, we need to... I mean, I don't even want to say that because there's so much so much in here from the listeners. That's great. Um, 
Let's do, let's do this. What do you make about Stephen's lying to the American lady who visits the mansion? Why does he do that? That why does he put that anecdote in the story? No, I think she wants to know about, you know, what is it that's, I, well, that's a good question. I think she, that's a good question. I don't know what she's asking as far as that goes. I think she's asking, what do you make from his character about, about um, why Stevens would lie to her in that particular scene? Hmm. Hmm. And what does that tell us about him? Right. Does it unlock anything? Right. Well, I think that it is one in a series of betrayals. Yep, and that's what that's what she mentions here. I was just going to say she mentions it happens more than once. Mm-hmm. Yes. So he's creating scenarios in his his memory is generating scenarios in which three times. I mean, this this is the craft of the author. I I think what he's getting as the three times betrayal of Peter. Right. Um, and then he has three opportunities to redeem that by claiming Lord Darlington throughout the rest of the novel. And so this is one of them. Um, and then this particular one, I think, is important because it's actually in betraying Lord Darlington. He is also betraying Mr. Faraday here because yeah. Mr. Faraday is yeah. embarrassed because he has he has said that Mr. Stevens was with Lord Darlington. And so you kind of see in claiming all this dignity, he is willing to throw it out the window if he thinks he's going to be judged in connection to his, to his employer or Darlington. And, and, and then we really, really see through this, how deep that goes for him. Um, even though he makes light of it, it's very yeah. deep in him that he right. is ashamed of himself and of his and of Lord Darlington that he's willing to be in his own home. Yeah, I think and dramatically, it uh, it be, it heightens the stakes in terms of and even the mystery a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, they, there's, this is a complicated guy. It suggests things about Darlington, or it suggests that there's things about Darlington and his reputation that we don't know yet. So. Uh, structurally, dramatically, it's it's also, you know, there's a lot going on there as well. Tim, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah. No, no. Um, well, let's see here. Some people are asking like four questions at a question. <laughs> uh, I Actually, the conversation on this book has been great. I'm really glad. So good. I've learned a lot from the readers. I've really, they've given me a lot of really good perspectives on the Facebook page, things I didn't see. Okay, here's one um, yeah. from Jenna. Yeah. In the final conversation between Miss Kenton and Mr. Stevens, they name each other every time they speak. Every quotation includes a Mrs. Ben or a Mr. Stevens. This is very awkward and not the way we speak to each other on a regular basis. I would never use my husband's or children's names again and again as we talked, for example, conversed, for example. Does this simply convey a formality between them right to the end, or is there something more significant to this naming? We talk about naming all the time on the show, so that's a good question. And at the Mm -hmm. same time, throughout that exchange, Stevens refers to her as Miss Kenton and not... Uh, never miss Ben to the reader. I wonder if this is yet another way that Stevens keeps everything at yeah. arm's length rather than allowing himself to fully absorb his circumstances and his feelings, as in she's Miss Kenton to me and always will be. Um, does this, is this a way of him detaching himself from reality and his own heartbreak, perhaps? Tim, thoughts? I think it might be a way of him detaching from the brutal, awful fact that she's married. Like not using her married name, I think Mr. Stevens wants to kind of like 
remember her as she was before she was married and when they had the possibility of being together. Now, the question about why do they use their names so frequently, I, I did notice this when I was reading it, and I wrestled with it. I don't really know the answer because it could be read as heightened formality, even in this intimate moment. But there's another way you could read it, which is, I know that when I'm speaking to someone and I have something important to say, I will, I find myself using their name more frequently. So I just had a conversation with one of my closest friends back home and it was a hard conversation and I used his name, Ben, repeatedly. Ben, repeat, you know, and I wonder if it was something like that. It was, it was one of those verbal cues that each of them used to understate that what is being said is of crucial importance. Hmm. Hmm. How did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I know naming is a big deal to you. Naming is a very big deal to me, and the way that they speak to each other, they they do. Speak use each other's names very frequently in the final conversation, but they also do throughout their whole acquaintance. Mm-hmm. And I think it is partly is, I mean, I, I think it's both. And I think it is the social custom of the day. Um, and I think it is a, does it's, it's an appeal to connect with each other as mm-hmm. well. You should name something is really important. When people use my name, when they, if you're talking to someone and you use their name, you people notice that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so. Heidi, I, yes, I agree. You do that a lot, Tim. When you talk to people, <laughs> you say their name a lot when you talk to them. I like that a lot. I've always thought that's just because he's used to writing plays where he has to write the name and then. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Um, but you do that a lot. And I, I think that that's, when you say someone's name, there is an intimacy in that, that, and I, and it's so significant that he calls her Miss Clinton throughout the whole novel. That is, that, that, the significance of that cannot be overstated. That is so important. That is how he wants to remember her. That is, that is how he holds her in his heart. Um, so yes, I think it's very significant that they, when they're talking to each other, they're saying each other's names, but they're speaking very formally about an intimate subject. He's asking her if she's being abused by her husband. Mm. And, and yeah. underneath that is the question, do you still care for me? Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, that's a pretty crucial little interaction because she responds pretty quickly and says, no, no, he's been, he's been quite respectful or whatever. He's she says. good to me. And I do love him. And I wonder, you know, we talk a lot about what, um, about his sacrifice in that conversation, but she's making a very big sacrifice as well because she knows like this, she knows she's never going to see him again. This is a softer, different, actually personal Mr. Stevens who is asking mm-hmm. her if she loves her husband. Mm-hmm. And I'm just imagining everything in her wants to say, I love you. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you fight for me? Right? So the fact that they're saying each other's names is a connecting point, but the formality of their conversation about such an intimate subject, there's just multiple levels going on in that conversation that is noble for both of them, but also just an ultimate sacrifice. Hmm. 
Okay. Well, because of time, I'm going to go through a couple of these. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a few of these comments from the listeners. And if you want to add something other than indeed or <laughs> or whatever, then feel free to do so. So I'm going to jump around on some of these just to give people some, uh, you know, I, I think these are interesting and useful comments and people will enjoy them. If you're not on the Facebook group, especially uh, if you are in the group, you may have seen some of these. So if either of you, if you feel like you want to jump in here, feel free. Reagan says she notes that on page... Well, actually, could be a guy. Uh, probably not though. It looks like the middle name is Michelle. So uh, <laughs> on page 11, Stevens examines his wardrobe for the upcoming journey and ultimately justifies the cost of the new attire because, quote, one never knows when one might be obliged to give out that one is from Darlington Hall. And it is important that one be attired at such times in a manner worthy of one's position, end quote. Initially, this could be seen as another subconscious veil buying a snazzy new outfit on the pretense of being of it being necessary for his professional appearance. But maybe his true motive being to look nice for Miss Kenton. However, it becomes clear on his journey that every commoner he comes in contact with initially mistakes him for a gentleman. She notes five different examples, it looks like. Do you think Stevens foresaw this as a possibility? Or even further, he played up the possibility of buying a new costume. What, if any, significance does this constant case of mistaken rank and hierarchy play in the framework of the journey, especially considering his interaction with Dr. Carlyle? It's possible I'm reading too much into this, but it seems there might be something there that I just can't piece together and would love additional thoughts. So there is a question there, but I think it's a great observation also. And so if you have anything you want to add to that, you can, you can do so. No, indubitably. I love that. I think she nailed it. Yeah, I think she did too. And, and I think, I mean, over and over in the book, Stephen's cloaks his intentions under the guise of professionalism but man getting to the end of the book looking back on this scene he wanted to look crisp for his boo that's what was going on <laughs> that's right yep that, and i and believe that is how he would lord put darlington. it yeah and he denies lord darlington so he yeah, specifically right. says he's buying it to represent right. him and then he denies him so clearly there's another reason so i think reagan is really on to onto something there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Here's a comment from Mary. She actually gives us a few passages in the book and uh, via picture below, but she mentions that Stevens seems so self-deluded or blind to himself and his surroundings on the one hand, and yet it's fascinating to watch the way he records observations other people make about him in an incredibly, incredibly revealing way. I think that's a great point, and I also think that he actually is in some ways, pretty observant of the landscapes around him. Um, he's, con- he's talking a lot about, he's, about the way he remembers things looking, and so I think that what you're getting out there is there's some of the rich complexities in this character and um, some of the ways that Ishiguro manages to to give the, give us that um, kind of objective correlative wise. Uh, anything you want to add to that? No, it's great. That's no, a good yeah. Um, okay. Um, this Christy says, speculate with me. What will his future look like? He's open to bantering now, but he still has a series of small errors to deal with question. and no additional help. As we saw with his father, he's nearing the end of his career. His whole identity is wrapped up in buttering. She actually said buttering, which I extremely am in favor Love of. That. Will he be <laughs> able to cope? Um, and then someone comments, any comments on that along those lines, what awaits a retiring butler in 1950s England? His father was taken care of by the family they served, but who would take care of Stevens? I think these are observations that are really crucial to the pathos of this book, particularly mm-hmm. the fact that he is now alone. I mean, I think that, I think that the, the sort of dramatic tension at the end of the book is in the space that is the remains of the day between when the book ends and when he needs care. That there is nobody to take care of him. I think that's the, the tragic element of this book. Thoughts? What is our close reader's name? Christy. Christy. 
He's open to bantering now, but what of it? Mm-hmm. It's a good question. I think if you were teaching this book, that, and you wanted to kind of try to um, elicit a response from the readers about whether or not they think this is a hopeful book or not a hopeful book, I think that's a perfect question. Because the way that you see his life playing out is whether mm-hmm. or not you think that it, it he's, there's hope for him going forward. And I'm going to say, I think that they're, I think that he will banter with his new American boss. And I think that there will be, I think that he might put flowers on his work mm-hmm. desk in his study. I, I, but it's very fragile. I don't know that he will. It would be it will be so easy for him to just kind of resort to this tried and true way of being in the world. And I think that he'll have to. It will. He will have to muster real courage to not resort to that. Hmm. The film made it pretty hopeful there at the end with that last little short scene. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. That's for our listeners who haven't seen the film. It's worth seeing. I mean, it really is worth. They, they changed some things. Do we need to have the two of you do a Patreon bonus episode for the discussion would, of the film? I David, I love that movie that. so much. I would too. Because I right, let's plan on it. I love right. that movie so but much. Go see the movie, listeners. Go be, rent the movie yeah. on iTunes or whatever, and um, and and tell us. That, that there's a last scene that's very short that is that is interpre- interpreted hopefully so hopefully that's uh-huh, the way it uh-huh. is. all right sometime in the next week then we will record a patreon bonus episode for people who Perfect. are supporting uh for supporting the show on patreon okay here's one from claire mr steven said his greatest moments were serving lord darlington both times were when he put aside personal relationships that were clearly in crisis to serve he talks about these two events in great detail yet he only gives a brief description to serving lord darlington as lord darlington was in decline i would think that serving someone when they're at their weakest and dying is a great act and yet he barely touches it is it because he doesn't think Lord Darlington was worthy of his service anymore because he had let Stevens down? Was it because he loved him so much that he still can't talk about it? Or is it because his duty, his idea of duty and dignity is wrapped up in only serving when there are events happening that could affect the world? That's, I loved this, this comment and question. I think that all of those probably play a factor into it, but I think he's ashamed of himself. And I think he had so believed in Lord Darlington and he knew what it had cost him to, you know, those, those two moments of great pride were absolutely the moments in which he lost everything that mattered to him Mm -hmm. personally Mm -hmm. in order to be the butler he wanted to be. And then Lord Darlington became what he became. And he wasn't even let into the Hawes society. Right. So that is, I, I, I think he's not proud of the later. I, I think the point she's making is so good. Why wouldn't you be proud that you maintained your faithfulness? Cause I think he was so connected with his service mattering. And then he questions that and it didn't, and he's ashamed. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know, Tim, do you, what do you think? I, 100% agree. I, I was trying to think of examples from my life or mm-hmm. examples from literature or film where someone uses 
something that they're really proud of as a shield in front of what they're really ashamed of. And I'm like, yes, I'm stumped for the moment, but that happens constantly, right? constantly because shame. I remember at a, at a uh, Circe conference, a guy who, who did he work? With? I think he worked with um, young people who kind of homeless kids. And he said that, within this organization, they would refer to shame as emotional death. Hmm. That's what it feels like. It feels like emotional death. And like he chose the word death. I mean, it was very, it's a very deliberate choice. And it's like, it's the thing that is so difficult to face. And of course, we're going to put up a shield in front of that so that nobody sees it. Maybe so that we don't even see it ourselves. So yeah, I, I I I like that response. What do you think, David? Do you think that's true? Or do you, I'd love to this question. I thought this was really gets to the heart of the book. Um, I'm actually going back trying to find the exact phrasing of the question because I, as I recall, there was something specific about the phrasing that I wanted to mention. But then I got I my screen went away from it, so now I've lost it. Um, so no. <laughs> Um, the thing about Lord Darlington is that he can barely express what the actual problem is Hmm. that's a that's a big deal to me like he can barely actually tell us what Lord Darlington was really involved in and what I wonder is does he know or is he not willing to tell us Hmm. like does he not does he actually not know and thus his involvement in these great things in the world was so on the edge that, you know, he really didn't know anything. Um, or but isn't is that Darlington, exactly the same question Mr. Cardinal asks him? Don't you know what's going on in that room? Mm-hmm, That's exactly right. what Cardinal says. You have the same question. Mm-hmm. And David, isn't it interesting that the earlier question about kind of what is the nature of Stephen's blindness? I think an answer to that question answers this question in a way. Hmm. Uh, go on. If if Stevens is guilty, as I think I would say that Heidi and I agree of being um, of willful nearsightedness, you know, if that if we have to choose among the kind of the type of blindness that he has, mm. if that's the one that we choose, well, then when Mister Cardinals, do you not see what's going on in there? The answer would be, well, no, Stevens doesn't see what's going on with there in there because he's choosing to be nearsighted and to not see it. Mm-hmm. So then do we, so then we, would we say that his, his commitment to being dutiful uh, because that that is what a dignified Butler does was what led him to be blind. Hmm. Or it was the mask, the justification for it. Mm-hmm. Right, maybe both, or yeah, or was he actually just deceived? Like, right. was he deceived by the man that he trusted? That's one of the big questions that I have. Right. right, I mean, he trusted Lord Darlington, so is one of the tragedies of the book not that he was blind to it, but that he trusted a man. I mean, there's blindness there, but mm-hmm. he trusted a man who ultimately led him wrong. Right, yeah, and I, I think, think there's, that, a, there's mm-hmm. a contrast there between him and his father. You know, I think right. he's never able to. He never seems to be able to ha- to have the same sort of um, intimate 
feelings for his father, express the feelings for his father that he expresses for Lord Darlington. I think that's pretty telling. And then ultimately yes. Lord Darlington is the one who lets him down. So I, I think one, I think focusing just on Stephen's blindness is a bit of a, I don't want to say it's like a, a herring or whatever, but I think it's a bit of a uh, injustice to him because I think he has been deceived. Mm-hmm. Part of it is that he was blind. Yeah. He saw the wrong things. He followed him for the wrong reason. Well, not maybe not for the wrong reasons, but he followed him willfully somewhat into gray areas at best, but also he was led wrongly and he was deceived himself. And I think that is a tragic part of this book just as much as uh, anything else. I agree. I completely yeah. agree with that. Well, that. That his blindness does not take place in a vacuum. Right. It, yeah. It's not, it's not because of so a, a, a character flaw that would have been there without all these other circumstances. Mm. I think he's, he's created by this system. Mm. Mm. He is the inevitable result of what it is to live in this society. Hmm. under this much under this cataclysm of nazism in europe which we've spent a lot of time talking about hmm. the public angle of this book if you yeah. zoom out there's so much more than the psychology of mr stevens there is mr stevens as a result of these forces that are far beyond him that he couldn't fight anyway hmm. as one man so, which isn't to say he couldn't have had moral courage. He should have. We all agree with that. But it would have cost him something that he was never educated or trained enough to fight. Like he mm. couldn't muster that. Mm. He wasn't given the resources for that. Yeah. Mm. Hey, Tim, I know you need to go. Yeah. Actually, oh. actually, David, I just, sorry, I went a little quiet earlier because <laughs> I got an email that said that we have to postpone that conversation. So oh, okay. I'm okay. Okay. Well, either way, we've gone for an hour and a half. So we probably should wrap right. this up because, you know, even Logan ha- doesn't want to have to edit it more than an hour and a half. Uh, so, uh, so thanks, Logan. Yeah. Thanks to everybody who has sent in questions uh, on Facebook and elsewhere. And um, I think there was a lot of great conversation and, you know, exceeded my expectations. I, I was, you know, I'm always a little unsure about how people are going to respond to books, uh, which brings me actually to the next book. So we're going to read the first six chapters, about 50 pages of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold for next week. And I should, you know, I, I should mention this. You use some discernment with this book as far as, you know, reading it with like your students um, or your kids, you know, if you're reading it at home and you sometimes read along with us. Um, there, I think there is a little bit of language and a little bit of violence and some you know, references to things like that. So just use some discernment. If many of you, it won't bother some of you at will. I, but I wanted to mention that, that at least be aware that there are some things like that. I don't think, as I recall, and when I was looking for it, I don't think it's like super, super extreme. Uh, but I, I, should, I wanted to at least put that disclaimer out there that you should be prepared to be discerning as necessary. Um, I mean, I would hope that you're that way about any book that we do. But <laughs> I wanted to make, make a public statement about that. Um, all right. Any final thoughts from either of you? No, I loved this book, David. This is a huge highlight for me on Close Reads. Thank you for choosing this book. Oh, sure. Tim? <laughs> I, I have one closing comment. Mm-hmm. Since kind of getting acquainted or kind of throwing my lot in with Christian classical education, there have been a few kind of signposts that have been in, that have encouraged me about how like wonderful and dynamic and rewarding this kind of education is one of them was when Heidi's son quoted a Shakespearean sonnet to me, like 
I've mentioned this to you before, Heidi. It was just, I remember just being, fun. How, how old was he when he did Flabbergasted. that? Flabbergasted. Flabbergasted. I think he was seven or eight at the time. It yeah, was a little while ago. Right. That sounds that right. That was such a fun time when you were out it there was in such Colorado. A fun time. Yeah. And the fact that he did it so blithely was <laughs> part of the reason why it just, it really struck me as like, oh my goodness, if a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old can do this and can do it with like joy on his face and in his body, something good is happening. And one of the, uh, and one of the other things is, uh, well, the quality of the questions on the Facebook page is hmm. to me another one of those like signals, the ability of our listeners to read and comprehend and to see things. It is so encouraging. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, definitely agree. That's definitely been one of the the highlights of doing this show. So don't let us down, people. Um, (laughs) Raise the stakes. Uh, All right. Well, with that, thanks to everyone who's been participating and listening. We look forward to talking to you about one of my very favorite novels, uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold next week. Uh, So for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Happy reading, and we'll be back with you next week. 